Well, this morning, um, <clears throat> I've simply titled the sermon, uh, The Applause Meter. And I want you to think about applause this morning. And I've got um, a couple questions for you to consider. First question, whose approval and applause do you care about the most? Amber asks you, you know, what are you, what are you proud of? That starts to get at that a little bit. But whose approval, whose applause do you care about the most, and how do you actually know that? Inviting us this morning to look in our hearts and almost check that applause meter that's inside that says, what are we actually seeking? What are we actually caring about when it comes to applause, recognition? We're going to have a good time this morning in the Word, uncovering, you can tell that already. It's going to be one of those Sundays, and it's a good thing. And I love you too much not to dig into the hard things. As I was preparing this week, I was reminded of uh, a story. 1994, game three of the Eastern Conference basketball finals. Some of you know this story right away. Bulls fans out there, Bulls versus the Knicks. The great Michael Jordan has retired. The heir apparent, the heir to the throne, Scottie Pippen for the Bulls, is now the star. The game is tied. It's like, I think it's 1.8 seconds to go or something like that. Phil Jackson, the legendary coach, calls a timeout and draws up a play. And everybody in the, in the building thinks that Scottie Pippen's going to get the last shot, including Scottie Pippen. But the play that the, the guru draws up is not for Scottie Pippen. It's for a, a rookie on the team. Got to remember his name here. <laughs> Tony Kukoc. He's a rookie. I think he went on and actually had a decent career, but at the time he was a nobody. Phil draws up that play. Scotty doesn't like it. He doesn't like it one bit. So you see Phil and Scotty having a heated exchange. I'm for sure I couldn't repeat the dialogue that happened there. And depending on whose version, either Scotty took himself out of the game or Phil benched him. The jury's still out. But Kuchoch went in, made the last shot, and there's been drama over this event over the last 30 years. If you follow documentaries and do that, you'll see different versions of it. But what you see in Scottie Pippen is this desire, even today, to prove his legacy. He said, it wasn't really about me taking the shot. It was about the respect that you put me out of bounds, your best player. There's this desire in the human heart for recognition that we see amplified in the arena, amplified on the sports field, maybe amplified in the business world, but I believe is true for each and every one of us. What is the applause meter in your heart this morning? That's what we're going to dive into. 
to get at that, we've been in this series called A Faith of Influence. We've been looking at, you know, what are the inputs? What are the things that really um, change your faith? What's coming in? And then what influence do you have? What's, what is your faith legacy? Who is your faith story influencing? And we've been looking through 1 Samuel and we've been looking at these particular scenes of influence. These moments in time, these critical moments where decisions have been made that are both a reflection of the input and there's a legacy of output that will follow. Week one, we, we looked at Hannah. And we said for Hannah, she, was, she processed her pain. And we said that you process your pain with the one who can provide lasting peace and eternal influence. And we looked last week at, at Samuel and this decision over, you know, give us a king, give us a king. And we said every, every crisis gives us a choice to be shaped by God to share the hope of Jesus with others. And really, I want to give you this verse from Romans 15, 4, that gives us a little bit of the why. Why would we go back and look at these old, ancient, weird, confusing, disturbing, brutally violent, sometimes offensive stories? Well, the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 15, 4. He says, for everything that has been written in the past. This is Paul. This is first century. Looking back, all the Old Testament was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. That's the point here. So we're looking at these ancient stories, and we're going to get some hope from this. It's a time different from our own. We've looked at pain, we've looked at crisis. This morning we're going to look at that applause meter and we're going to dig in and look at our pride. We're going to look at our pride. And we're going to do a little bit of a character study on that first king, Saul. I'm going to give you some highlights and some lowlights of his life and we're going to focus on a particular story Then we'll show how that lack in his life points to Jesus. And then we'll look at a process that can be helpful to us all. One of the things I love about the Old Testament is that it gives us... I used to be an English teacher, sorry. apologize. You don't have to worry about how you speak around me. I don't care about that stuff. But when we talk about characters, there's round characters and there's flat characters doesn't have anything to do with their shape, but a flat character is one-dimensional. They're all good, they're all bad. A round character has good and bad. Saul is a round character. There are good things about Saul, there are bad things about Saul. There's also static and dynamic characters. Static, they stay the same. Dynamic, they, they change. So a lot of times in the Old Testament, we look at these characters that are both round, they're, they're good and they're bad, and they're static. They rise and fall, and sometimes a few times. You know why I love that? Because that's real life. 
That's real life. And when we look at these stories, we can look in the mirror, look in our hearts, and they're also going to point us to some solutions. We can see our need for Jesus. Let me give you a little bit of uh, the highlight reel from Saul. This is another um, rise and fall story in many ways. He's the first Israelite king. He's the one last week we, we, we talked about the people's desire for a king. Well, he's the first one. He's known for his good looks and his height. He's a head taller than everybody else. And that's what, that's what stands out. Saul would rule, according to 1 Samuel 13, 1, and then Acts 13, 2, he would rule for 40 years. I say this because we're going to see a couple little scenes in here, but there's a long arc of his rule. And there are many particular scenes in there that can be instructive. Saul starts off with some humility. When he's approached, he said, am I not a Benjamite? Am I not from the least of the tribes? In fact, he hides. It's not like he's grasping for this power. He actually hides at the beginning. In fact, some of his contemporaries, how can this guy be king? How can he save us? And then there's this conflict between this war between the Israelites and the Ammonites. And the Ammonites have the upper hand and they say, hey, we'll make a treaty with you if you do this. If you all gouge out your right eyes, then we'll, we'll make peace with you. That's a little rough. I said these brutal stories. So Saul's going to come in. Saul's going to save the day, defeat the evil people. And then some are going to say, hey, let's put to death those people who said, what about Saul? And he said, no, 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 no. No, no, no. We're not, we're not going to do that. He says, shall Saul... He says, not a man shall be put to death, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. So we're off to a good start. We're cheering for Saul. This looks like it's going to be good. He will continue to fight the Philistines. But there's this one incident where he doesn't wait on Samuel. He just goes ahead, makes the sacrifice. Seems weird to us, but the bottom line is he doesn't wait on the Lord. He's disobedient. And Samuel says, um, you have not kept the one command. It almost takes you back to the garden. You know, I gave you one command and you didn't do it. Just trust me, he didn't do it. So uh, the consequences are harsh. Your kingdom shall not continue forever. The Lord has sought someone after his own heart. This will be David. We'll get there but Saul's got a lot of time left. One of the things that has stood out to me as I've kind of walked with Saul this week is Saul knows his legacy is going to be tarnished, but yet he's still in power. Imagine that dilemma. You know your, king's going, your kingdom's going to be taken away. It's not just a, hey, try to do better, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a final deal, but yet he's still in power. Well, meanwhile, there are Philistines to fight. 
Now Saul has a son named Jonathan. And Jonathan is grown and Jonathan is tired of hiding in caves. Hiding in caves against the enemy. So he's going to take it upon himself. His father Saul doesn't know it, but he's going to lead this little sneak attack. He's going to get his armor barrier. And the, the situation is so bad for them that they don't really have swords. The Philistines have all the blacksmiths. So they're kind of, you know, out, outgunned a little bit here. But uh, Jonathan's going to be inspired, and he will lead this raid, and, and that will inspire the Israelite people, and they'll gain victory over this. Now put yourself in Saul's position here. Think about what your son has done. Rather than cheer his son on, Saul's going to have a different response. And I'm going to take you there right now. I want you to go to 1 Samuel 14, 24. I'm going to read a section for you here. Invite you to turn to it or you can look on the screen. 1 Samuel 14, 24. Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out. Yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Then someone said to, to Saul, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, go out among the men and tell them, each of you bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. So everyone brought his ox that might <clears throat> that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. Saul said, let us go down and pursue the Philistine, Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn. Let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. Saul therefore said, come here all you who are leaders of the army and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word. Saul then said to all the Israelites, you stand over there and I and Jonathan, my son, will stand over here. 
Do what seems best to you, they replied. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel. Why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot and the men were cleared. Saul said, cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die? Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die, he who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered them. What a story. What do we do with this story? Well, let's make a couple observations from the text, and then we'll see what it can teach us. First of all, we see that there is, are two commands that are given. Two commands. One is from Saul. Verse 24, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. Did God give this command to Saul? No. Did, God search, did, did Saul search the scriptures and find this command in there? No. Where does this com- command come from? Saul. Saul. Notice, notice the language. Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. What's the motivation here? I don't know exactly what he knows about what his son is doing, but there's definitely a motivation that comes from, I have to do this. This has to happen for me. That's the first, even to the point where he's going to sacrifice his own son to fulfill his own harsh, misguided vow. But then there's a second command. Do not eat um, meat with blood still in it. This comes from Leviticus. If, if you're new to this, it's, it's a little bit strange to our cultural ears. All right, in many ways, the, the blood was both precious because of life is in the blood, and it also pointed to the sacrifice ultimately to Jesus in the blood. So there was a reverence for that. So don't eat meat with the blood. So Saul's man-made command, don't eat anything. They're famished. They've been fighting. The people are so hungry that they violate God's command. Sometimes our man-made commands get in the way of God's commands. That's a sermon right there, but I'll just leave that for you. 
So that's what we see. And then there are consequences. Consequences here. Saul will vow to put his own son to death. The hero of the day. Now there's this strange thing with the, um, the Urim and the Thummim. Had to do with the priest would wear the ephod and on the ephod there would be stones and it was a way of casting lots and perhaps the light would shine on one of the stones. It would be like heads or tails in some ways. God, how will you, how will you answer this? So they go through this process that ultimately gets down to Jonathan. And when we see in this, we see Saul's rashness in the process. We see his own applause meter, that desire for that, come out. And it's going to point forward to some other incidences in King Saul's life. There will be a later time where he will disobey God. And he'll be confronted by Samuel. And then Saul will say this, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command. This is verse 25, 15, 25. In your instructions, I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. This is King Saul's dilemma. And he says it. I, I was afraid of, the, of pleasing people. That's the conflict for him. It, it points us to Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. When we look at King Saul, Set aside the cultural differences for a minute. Set aside, some of you are like, this is just really gross. <laughs> We're not grilling out for lunch today after that. But what's underneath is a look at the heart. It's a look at that applause meter. It's a look at Saul and it's saying, what is really driving him? Saul gives us a window into our own internal conflict of the fear of man or the fear of people versus the fear of God seeking the applause of people versus the applause of God. We'll see this throughout Saul's life. Later, there's this poignant scene where they're coming back from, from battle and uh, the people will say, uh, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Saul can never take pleasure in somebody else's victory. His own son, David, there, there is an, a, something lacking in him that's always searching. And I want to invite us to lean into that conflict today. And to do that, I want to take you to uh, the Saul of the New Testament, who becomes Paul. Now Saul, who became Paul, had his own journey. He had his own resume. Like King Saul, he was a Benjamite. Saul had a really impressive resume. But he comes to the point where he said, all this is rubbish. All this is really garbage. 
compared to my relationship with Jesus. So Saul will have this transformation. He'll be on the road to Damascus. He's, he's out persecuting the early church. And the voice of Jesus will say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then Saul will become Paul and he will be a light to the Gentiles. He will get this whole thing going. Amazing story. But he says this in Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. What an example of Jesus we see here. We see what really matters, and we see this word conceit. Paul in another place, in Galatians 5, 25 and 26, will say this. If we live by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another envying one another. Let's talk about this word conceit for a minute. Do you enjoy being called conceited? What's it mean to be conceited? You're full of yourself. Easy to see in somebody else, harder to see in ourselves. But there's even more to this word conceited. I don't often go to the Greek, but I'm going to do that with you today because I think it's really helpful. If you look at the old King James, it's a little more literal. 526, he says, let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. We don't use the word vainglory anymore in our language so much. We use the word conceited. But this vainglory actually comes from, the, it's a co Greek compound word, so it's vain, it's, it's empty, and then it's glory. Kinodoxa. It's a compound word. Empty glory. What does that mean? Stick with me here. Put your thinking cap on this morning. It's empty glory. Augustine, like fourth century, would say this. He talks about the human heart. And he gives us a picture of this empty glory. He says, you have... You have made us for you, Lord. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. What Augustine and others over the years have said when they look at this passage is that there's a, there's a vacuum in the heart. There's a desire for applause that will never find peace, will never find contentment until that gap, that vacuum is filled by our Creator. 
Any other attempt is vain glory. It is empty glory. It is desiring to fill that, to seek the applause of somebody else other than the Lord. That's what vain glory is. I would invite you to look within for just a moment. And I want you to look at that verse again. It says, let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. What do we do when we provoke? We're pushing ourselves forward. We're pushing our own agenda. We're saying, we are superior to you. That's one side of pride. That's one side of arrogance. How many of you have been on the other end of that? Oh, what a crowd. You've never experienced that, right? We've all experienced that. Somebody else's agenda over yours, and you don't like it? And you can spot that out, you can call that out? That's one side of pride. That's the arrogant side of pride. That's so easy to see when you're on the receiving end of it. But there's also envying one another. There's the, the side of an inferior complex that says, I'm always less than. I'm always less than. That person has X, Y, and Z, and I'm always less than. It's both. It's both. Now, that sets up a process for us here this morning. And I want to give you this bottom line, and then I'll give you a couple points to consider. I want you to pay attention to and pursue the applause of the one who matters most. We all, we're created for some applause here. We're created for, for some approval. We, that we're, we're human beings. We're not islands. We're not rocks. We desire that. But whose approval, whose applause are you ultimately seeking? Pay attention to and pursue the applause of the one who matters most. If you want to combat pride, if you want to grow in humility, that's the ticket. Now, let me give you some steps. Let me try to be super practical with you here. All right? So we've, we've got this picture of King Saul. It's strange. It's old. It's ancient. But for all the technology, the human heart doesn't fundamentally change. We've looked at this example of Jesus. Now let's go through a process that I want you to apply. First, okay, and I want you to think of this as a helpful pattern. And I'm building off a pattern I shared briefly with you last week. But the first is to see. It's to see. What do we look at? Well, I just read it to you. We look at the example of Jesus. We see the humility of Jesus. We see the cost of his sacrifice for you and for me on the cross. Have you seen that? Do you have a recognition of the love of Jesus? That's concrete. That's real. Jesus entered history. This is objective. Whether you believe it or not, it happened. If you're going to reject that, know what you're rejecting. That is an objective claim. It's not dependent on you to believe it for it to be true or false. But we see this picture of Jesus. We have a recognition of 
the love of Jesus. A demonstration of his love for you. That's the start. That's kind of that analytical look at it part. Having a conversation with somebody last night, they were talking about a loved one who is so analytical and they just, they can't buy it. They don't, they're going through a process. Some of you are like that or you got people in your lives. Just keep at it. Walk with them. You don't have to focus on everything, but look at the resurrection. (laughs) Focus on the main thing. He rose or he didn't. And if he rose, it's true. And there's good reason to believe why he rose. But that's the objective part. But then there's the second piece of this, which is to to share. And what I mean by share is we're invited to walk with the Holy Spirit. When I see this picture of Jesus and I see what he's done, there's an awe to that. We use the word awesome flippantly. I mean, this is true awe. I mean, I can stand before God, the, the creator of the universe, and I, I, I see his love for me, and I'm, I'm in awe of that. And, and just trying to follow that example on my own is like me trying to be like Mike and Dunk. It ain't going to happen. But there's the subjective part of this. There's a sharing my life with God, that he's given us the Holy Spirit, that we are to walk with God the Spirit. It's a picture of intimacy. It's a picture of closeness. My wife Kim and I went on a great hike Friday in Morgan Monroe State Forest, 10 miles. We're walking side by side. Beautiful picture of closeness. Sometimes she would walk ahead and take all the cobwebs in the face. What an example of sacrifice. But We get this picture of intimacy with God, both awe and intimacy. That's what it's about. So we can walk with the Spirit. We can share our lives with Him. There's a recognition by God that you are His child. You are His child. You can receive the well done that praise but then third it's submit let's let's do something with that let's sacrifice let's serve even as you walk with the spirit how do we get rid of the the vainglory what does that actually look like we've got this I've got the picture of all that I can see. I've got this experience, this subjective experience with the Spirit that God is with me. Now let's let's do something with that. Let's, Let's set aside our privileges. Set aside our rights. Set aside my desire. I've got to be right all the time. That's a sacrifice. That's a picture of... And sometimes we just think about the big decisions of life. And yeah, that's true. We need that in that. But I'd invite you to consider something else. Uh, Just look at the everyday for a minute. I was reminded uh, when my kids were little and they got sick. And uh, the boys had bunk beds that went like that. That's not good when they get the pukes. Johnny on the top puked on Seth on the bottom. 2 a.m. Have you been there? And so what did Kim and I have to do in the middle of the night? 
and we're going back to sleep. We're tired. Sorry, guys. No, no, you have sacrifice. You got to get out of bed. This was so bad, we had to, like, take the blankets out and hose them off. I mean, this is thick puke. I mean, this is the, t- you know, I mean, you can't just throw it in the washing machine. I've tried that. That didn't work out well. But did the kids get up in the morning and say, you know, Mom and Dad, thank you for your sacrifice and service. Did I go to work this morning? I was teaching at the time, and, and the students just stand up and applauded. Mr. Gallman, I know you, you only got two hours of sleep last night. We're so proud of you. No, no, no. Did, did Kim, you know, she's laboring and delivering. Did she go to work, and did they applaud? No. No. But who sees that? Jesus. And it's in the little, it's in the everyday stuff. Yeah, it's in the big stuff, but it's in the everyday. Can I see Jesus clearly, power of the Holy Spirit, and then can I serve? Ah, what a picture. I want you to grasp that picture. That's a process for you. Now, I'm going to take us to the communion table. I get a little carried away. I got to do this quickly. I'm sorry. But when you think of Jesus, Jesus took the jeers, Jesus took the insults on the cross. Why? So that we could receive the applause from God. I want you to think about that. When we come to the communion table, we, we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. All that we talked about in Philippians 2, that's what he did. He gave his body for us. He sacrificed his body, his broken body, his shed blood. And when we receive the bread and we drink the cup, we remember that and we say, thank you. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite you to come forward and receive. And here at Community Church, our table's open to all who've taken a step of faith and trust in Christ. Doesn't mean you've got it all figured out. Doesn't mean your hands are perfectly clean, your heart's perfectly pure, but you've taken that step of faith and trust in Jesus. If that's true, the table is open for you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thankful, are so thankful that it can encourage us. So help us now, even as we reflect and we prepare to go to the table, that we would examine that applause meter in our own hearts. And we would simply say, thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. And may we seek your approval above all else. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.